the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And our conversations with Jim Ramsey, Vice President of Mission Ministries at the Mission Society, we're talking about the challenges of living a missional life in modern-day America today. And, uh, Jim, certainly we've seen historically an effort in in trying to sort of uh, preserve uh, what America used to look like by means of changing laws in our country, certainly electing the right guy or gal to public office, and yet in spite of those efforts that uh, began in earnest in the 1970s and to a lesser degree perhaps uh, continue to this very day, uh, maybe we've slowed the demise towards uh, apostasy down, but certainly haven't prevented it or stopped it from happening, which maybe uh, maybe ought to call into question some of the methodology that we have used as believers uh, to to change society around us. And let me quickly add, I'm, I'm not suggesting here that we shouldn't try to be salt and light. We absolutely have, I believe, an obligation to do that. But at the core, if you want to change things, it really has to begin with changing the heart, doesn't it? I think so, and I and I would agree with with what you the kind of the caveat you said there is. I'm I'm certainly an advocate of Christians being involved in the public square. I think that that for us to isolate ourselves and say, well, you know, the whole country's going to going to pot, and we're just going to do individual evangelism and not care about who's elected, not care about what the issues are in our local in our local governments, our state governments, our federal government. I think that would be a big mistake. I think some of the question to me is the tone. Of, of the debate, I think sometimes evangelicals in these in these larger kind of culture wars, even the word culture war says something about about the approach. The, the tone is is very antagonistic. It, it's it's not attractive at all, and so really the only people that energize us are people who think like me. But it's not it's not going to be something that's going to make someone who who doesn't have faith really be interested in faith. And so I think we have to recognize that it's it's our lives and our our tone uh, that really is going to make a difference. And, and as you said, that's going to happen at the relational level. Uh, now, let, let's put this in context. And again, your background as uh, having spent uh, the better part of a decade as a missionary in Kazakhstan, I think uniquely qualifies you to, to speak to this point. When, when you travel there with your family as a missionary, you're going into a country that had been under the cloak of communism for many, many years. And so there's a good percentage of people that live in the country that, that were good students of Marx and Lenin who were atheists. You have a nation that is 60, maybe 70 percent Islamic, a good percentage, probably 20, 25 percent Russian Orthodox. And into that environment, you can you can certainly walk in and say, well, gee, you people don't think as I do. You don't believe as I do. What's the matter with you? Get your act together. I would suspect, though, that would not make you very effective as a missionary. So what are the lessons that you learned going into Kazakh society Jim, that that you can maybe help us better understand what we as believers in America need to do in dealing with a different kind of culture and society in which we live today. That that equally we we it, it's foreign to us to be sure, and yet as in need of the good news of the gospel of our Savior in America today, as as it was when you served in Kazakhstan. Yeah, I think that's that's the the key. Is that when we went to Kazakhstan, we expected a different culture. 
we didn't expect the host culture to behave as Christians. We, we figured there was going to be good people, obviously, and there'd be good people in government and everything, but, but there's, there was no expectation that the host, the dominant culture, the government systems were going to be supportive of, of the gospel. And so by losing that expectation, we weren't there to fight that battle, but we were there, as you said earlier, to win the hearts and, and, and minds of people by living among them, by getting to know them, by being in discipling relationships and planting the, the community of faith there. And, and I, think, I think the community of faith, when people are living in faith in community, studying the Word and praying together and loving one another, it's extremely subversive. Uh, it, it really begins to change the culture from within, uh, as those people, as you said, become salt and light. But when we, we come at the culture in attack mode, then any time you go in attack mode, people go in defensive position, and that's, that's not going to be as appealing. So we, the, the difference is, with the Kazakhstan, we knew that, we expected that. Somehow, because America has, we, we, we've got the understanding of the so-called Christian nation, we don't expect that here, and we get offended when we come up against a hostile government, a hostile host culture, rather than just saying that's the way it is. So I think that's one thing we can learn from people, either missionaries or national believers, who have lived in contexts where there is not, where Christianity is not the dominant, the dominant culture. You use two words that are maybe key to this. You use the phrase discipling relationships. It's easy yeah. for us to enter into an environment that is not one that we believe is necessarily biblically based in nature and to launch into attack mode, meaning you shouldn't be going to mosque, you should be attending church with me on Sunday, etc., etc. I would imagine had that been your approach out the gate in Kazakhstan, you would not have been very successful at, at, at changing hearts and minds, but engaging in... My visa would not have been renewed. I would imagine so. But but engaging in discipling relationships, that also means that you have to be willing to roll up your sleeves and be in contact with people at a level in which you're able to speak truth into their life. And that really means gaining their trust, doesn't it? Absolutely. I think that's, that's the key, is, is gaining trust, putting ourselves intentionally in communities with people who are different than us. And that... Is, has not been traditionally part of the evangelical culture so much within America. We're good at that as missionaries, but our own culture here, I, I heard somebody once say, you know, take the cell phone test. Um, look for your cell phone contact list. How many of those are not believers? Um, um, and so I think we we don't sometimes, but by putting ourselves intensely in community with people where we're just sharing life with them, as you said, that, that gains the, the trust and the relationship, but then we can begin to share who we are in Christ, and, and that's that really is the making fishers of men that Jesus invited his disciples to. So if we want to effectively influence the culture around us, not only from the salt and preservative standpoint, but but ultimately from the evangelical standpoint in, in winning people for Christ and growing the church, then it sounds like you're suggesting, Jim, that we need to kind of take on the same mentality that the missionary does as he or she is preparing to go overseas, meaning that you know that you're going into an environment that may be 
hostile in some ways toward your belief system and the way you worship and the way you think and the way you behave, maybe not understanding of many of those values and approaches, and yet you are going into their environment where they are the dominant language, the dominant culture. And so typically a missionary takes time to, at the very least, understand the culture, maybe even take time to understand the language. Certainly if you're going to live amongst them, that's that's critically important. And then you, you learn how to engage people from where they're at. That doesn't mean that you embrace what they think or do. That doesn't mean that to, to reach a Muslim you become one. But it does, though, mean that you have to be, what, a little bit more open understanding in order to, to, to gain permission to speak truth into their life? I, I think that's exactly right. I think that's, that's the key is, is taking your time, listening, learning, genuinely respecting, desiring to know people. You, nobody wants to be a target. <laughs> So if you say, you know, this person is a target of my evangelism, that, that basically takes away the relationship, and you never saw Christ do that. Christ always, the person in front of him was the, had the full, his full attention at the moment. And I think we sometimes lose track of that when, when we think that these are, these are people who need to be objects of our evangelism rather than, than, than uh, people who we are seeking relationship with, learning God together, and then trusting, if we really believe the gospel is truth, the Holy Spirit is the one who convicts, then we can kind of chill out and just be in the relationship and, and let, let God do His work through us. Jim, I'm fascinated by this. Can you stay with us for one more segment? Sure. Uh, just stand by for a minute. We're going to come back right after a quick time out here. I want to get updated on some traffic before we get to too far afield. We've got Jim Ramsey with us, Vice President of Mission Ministries for the Mission Society. He spent 10 years with his family in Kazakhstan as a missionary and now is back here in the States, as we mentioned, um, uh, serving as Vice President of Mission Ministries for the Mission Society. And uh, he's written a recent article that caught my attention because it, I think, really calls into question uh, the way we live out our faith here in America. All of us know, you've read the headlines, you hear the stories, we know that the culture and the society in which we live is changing and continues to change. And let's face it, a lot of this is not a march uh, back toward historical Christian and biblical values, but quite frankly, uh, in just the opposite direction. And yet we see ourselves in the middle of a culture war, and we think that means we need to pick up our guns and start fighting the enemy. Uh, but, But who is the enemy here? And are they people that are, you know, again, notches on the holster? Oh, we won one more? Is that what we were? They're on a list, as Jim suggests? Or is it a matter of learning how to live out our faith missionally in an ever-increasing hostile non-Christian environment, in sort of that post-Christian environment that Francis Schaeffer spoke and wrote of, and, and, and to do so in understanding then ultimately what it means to, to share our faith and to lovingly attract others to us. Hey, there's a new concept. A brief time out back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 
And welcome back to the conversation. Now, I know some of you are saying, well, now, Craig, wait a minute now. Guys, let's let's be fair here. Uh, this is not going to work in American culture today. I mean, when you're talking about an environment in which there is so much hostility um, uh, towards Christianity, how can we ever hope to be successful at this? And yet, uh, Jim Ramsey, I have to point to what we see taking place with, let's say, the church in China today, where hostility, my goodness, exists not only institutionalized at the government level and local level, even by individuals in many villages and communities where, let's face it, even even as we saw the spread of Christianity uh, here over the last 50, 60 years since the beginning of, of communism there, it's taken place without many of the so-called traditional trappings of, of um, Christianity in the West, meaning they don't have open evangelistic meetings, they don't do uh, Christian radio or television, you can't openly preach. Uh, there's many things that we see as sort of the necessary necessary tools of sharing the gospel in the West that are completely absent in a place like communist China, and yet the church there is growing by leaps and bounds in one of the most hostile environments possible. That suggests to me that this idea of of growing the church as we share our faith in a hostile culture or a hostile environment is, is not only quite possible, but is happening today. Absolutely, and I think if you look historically, the Church often has, has been strongest when it's persecuted. Now, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not someone who's eager to see that happen here, but you're right, history shows that. I mean, look at the early Church, just the very beginning. I mean, the Church starts with these, this ragtag group of disciples, certainly in an extremely hostile environment. I mean, I've not seen too many Christians in America have been taken out to the, uh, the Colosseum and, and given to the animals, and yet... And yet the church grew rapidly during those first couple hundred years, and it was because people were living out their faith in community in a very hostile environment, and people took notice of that. And so, um, and that is, you're right, that's exactly what we see in China. I heard a Chinese believer one time uh, said this, I, I wish I could attribute the quote to the right person. He said, yes, in China we follow the Communist Party plan for, for church growth. <laughs> what the Communist Party plan for church growth? He said, yes. He says, we don't have seminary-trained pastors. Um, we can't have more than 12 people meet together in, in a group, um, and we can't depend on outside money, but the uh, the Communist Party's plan for church growth. <laughs> and, of course, and it's so been... Quite being a little bit facetious, but that, that the church sometimes grows best when you have this very kind of tight-knit community approach to church rather than the larger institutional approach to church. And, you know, we understand certainly the frustration. There are moments in time when we've all felt frustration with what we see taking place in our American culture today. And yet a hostile posture towards the culture is only going to be received by those in the culture as uh, Christians being hostile toward them. And it was always suggested, certainly as I've read uh, Scripture, that the best way to attract people, that they will know us by our love, that we can attract others to the love of God by showing first the love of God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think you, know, you started to say with the Bruce Jenner story, and I've not been following that closely. And, you know, it. I'll be quite honest, I have a hard time understanding that. But at the same time, my question is, should we expect Bruce Jenner to act like a believing evangelical Christian? And if not, then why should we be mad at him for making the choices he's made? Or, you know, are, are we mandated to love him where he is and then understand what does that look like? And this obviously raises a lot of questions that I'm, I'm myself struggling to say, what is, how does that look in a lot of these really complicated situations? But I think some of the basic problem we run into is we expect our dominant culture to behave like believers when the fact is most of them are not believers. 
And so we need to lose that expectation and say, what does it look like for us to act like believers in that setting? We hear a lot of the phraseology about uh, culture wars, right? War with the culture, things of this sort. And, and of course, those, some of those militaristic terms, I know, from the non-believer perspective, uh, really intimidates people, and it, it sets up a very false idea of not only who we as the church are, but quite frankly, who, who Christ is and, and what his character is. It runs very contrary into the image we see of Scripture. Now, again, I'm not saying that God is not about righteousness, Right. And holiness, I'm not suggesting that we need to somehow pull back from uh, taking a strong stand when it comes to being salt and light. But when we talk about engaging the culture uh, from a missional standpoint, uh, and, and based on your experience in doing this, you know, uh, on a full-time basis in a full-time and mission environment, when we talk about it from that viewpoint, Jim, some closing thoughts just in terms of how you see we as the church ought to be engaging the culture and society around us as we can then be most effective in reaching others for Christ. Well, a couple of these, I think, are, are critical. One thing, we, we have got to regain the concept of community. We, we somehow replace community with, with kind of church and Sunday school, which themselves are not bad things at all. Don't ever get me wrong on that. But that, that sitting in a sanctuary for an hour on Sunday and maybe even going to a, um, a Sunday school class that morning is not replacing community. So I think we have to discover community because that's what people are hungry for and are attracted to. So, so we need, first off, we need as believers to be living in community. Um, and then I think, secondly, understanding that, that discipleship is the model that Jesus and the disciples used to, to, to increase the church. And so finding those relationships where we can naturally live life with people, talk about life issues with people. Um, I don't find people are not resistant to spiritual discussions. They're resistant to spiritual formulas <laughs> where we try to trivialize the, the hard issues of life. But when we when we're willing to engage with people in, in hard issues of life from our faith perspectives, rather than trivializing them or having pat formulaic answers, um, I've not found that people are close to that. Uh, so I think those are those are a couple things I say right off. It's just let's just be more attractive. And then absolutely, I mean, I think it's I'm glad there's believers who are in politics. I'm glad there's believers who are, are out in the public square. And we should pray for them and encourage them. Uh, but but I think the the militaristic language is is not helpful. And uh, it, like you said, it does. It, it kind of spooks people because their idea of religious people already is kind of intolerant. People who want to, you know, restart the Spanish Inquisition, and so they're already thinking that. And we just kind of add yes to that understanding. It's it's not helpful. Well, and it seems to me it's the easy way out. I mean, any of us can 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 quote chapter and verse and engage in a good hefty round of biblical browbeating. And, and, and beat somebody into submission, and we feel good about ourselves afterwards because, by golly, we told them. And that doesn't really require much of our heart, nor our life, nor our time. It's something entirely different to engage in biblical love, whereas you talked about your experiences in Kazakhstan really engaged in discipling relationships. Well, my goodness, now that really that really calls uh, me out to, to, to engage more, to invest more of my heart and my life. And as I do so, of course, you ultimately become very more effective in, 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 in introducing your Jesus to others. And so I, I guess it really is the difference between do we just want to take the easy way out and engage in biblical browbeating or really engage in biblical love? You can certainly put it that way, I think. Absolutely. 
Well, Jim, we appreciate the insights. It's, it's a brilliant article, and I think one that, uh, that really ought to cause all of us to pause and really take account of uh, what it means to live the missional life in America today in 2015. I'll point folks towards the website, uh, themissionsociety.org. That's themissionsociety.org, or maybe just do a Google search. You'll wind up finding it. The article is called Living Missionally in a Post-Christian Context. And our thanks to Jim Ramsey, Vice President, Mission Ministries for the Mission Society, for being with us on this segment of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're going to talk about a topic that we're all intimately familiar with and probably all at one level or another, certainly at one time or another in our lives, equally chagrined by and embarrassed by. Remember that passage? It's early on in Genesis. I'm going to do this from memory, I think around Genesis 3.10 or somewhere in that neighborhood um, where... Adam and Eve have now partaken of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They have discovered their nakedness, and in a response to their shame, they have hid themselves from God. Shame, in some ways, can be a healthy mechanism. Unfortunately, shame, in other ways, can move us away from others that can help us and encourage us. And as we see in the case of this passage in uh, Genesis 3, 10 and following, that, that shame can move us away from God. That certainly was the case of the experience of Adam and Eve in the garden. A lot of believers today are crippled by shame. They are paralyzed by shame. They have a damaged view of themselves, and as a result, um, have to deal with that damaged view as it relates to even impacting how they see or understand how God sees them, literally standing as a barrier between themselves and a healthy relationship with God. Let's talk about this matter of shame. Dr. Kurt Thompson joins us. New book out by InterVarsity Press called The Soul of Shame, Retelling the Stories We Believe About Ourselves. As I say, newly published by InterVarsity Press. And Dr. Thompson, great to have you on the program with us tonight. Thanks, Craig. It's great to be with you. Let's talk about shame for a moment. We, we naturally think, even as we read that passage in Genesis, that shame is a bad, awful, terrible thing that has terrible consequences. But isn't there a degree, a certain fashion in which shame can be helpful? If, for example, if I... If I were to back into a lit stove, without the benefit of pain to tell me I'm burning, there would be nothing to communicate to myself to step away from the stove so that I don't do further damage to my body. Is there a manner in which shame to a degree could function like that, could be helpful to us if, if, if it's responded to in a healthy fashion, both emotionally and theologically? I think you're right. I think that uh, not only from a, from a biblical perspective, but from what we know from uh, just living in families, and let alone what we know from a neurobiological perspective, that the experience of shame is common, it's normal, uh, we experience it early and often as human beings, actually far earlier in our lives than most of us would even imagine that we encounter it, given how it functions in our brain. 
but it's also true that uh, the, the real problem that we encounter with this phenomenon has a lot more to do with what we uh, then do in our response to it. It's not even so much that shame in and of itself and our experience of it is the problem as much as what we then do very quickly in response to it. And we see from the biblical narrative that the response of the people who first felt that uh, was not to turn to the other, was not to seek help, not to seek connection from God or from each other, but was, as you've already mentioned, what their, the response was to hide, the response was to turn away. And unfortunately, uh, this then becomes a fairly common practice that we not only experience, but in our response to shame that is so unhelpful, we then also tend to propagate this. We reinforce it in our own lives. And then we tend to spread that, because when we carry shame around with us, uh, it becomes um, like this undercurrent of emotional tenor and tone that is constantly coloring a lot of our interactions. And so we don't just, as we most commonly do, shame ourselves, even quietly, uh, but we also then end up reacting and doing that very thing to other people, uh, oftentimes without our even being consciously aware that we're doing it. And the irony about this is that there is that sense when when we um, are aware of our own shame, um, we feel vulnerable. I mean, I, I, that's certainly the way I would interpret Adam and Eve's reaction by covering themselves up. They felt vulnerable. Maybe that's a stretch, so you, you can correct me on that. But, but there's interesting something there because that vulnerability, if it reveals a defect in ourselves, such as in the case of Adam and Eve, where they essentially broke God's single law, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they did so. They suddenly realized their shame. They were feeling vulnerable. But instead of losing that, using that vulnerability to, to open themselves up before God and be able to find forgiveness, they, they suddenly had the reaction to hide themselves. Do we do the same? Well, we certainly do the same, and I think that your uh, use of the word vulnerability is really helpful. Uh, we talk about this a fair bit in the book, um, and I think that, you know, one thing that we point to is, is this notion that the, uh, we, we often will talk about feeling vulnerable, uh, and the connotation is that it's a bad thing, like we don't like to feel vulnerable. Um, what's striking about the biblical text, though, is that it's made very plain in the second chapter of Genesis, preceding that little nasty interaction that the woman and the snake and the man have, that when the man and the woman were created, at the very end of chapter 2, the woman and the man, the man and the woman were naked and they were unashamed. And that notion of being naked is not just a description. In the Hebrew, it's not just a description of their physicality. It is also a way of stating the fact that they were then vulnerable. And the reality is that, you know, most of us go through life working really hard to not be vulnerable, working really hard not to allow ourselves to feel like we find ourselves in those places, when the reality is that we are vulnerable creatures. Uh, It doesn't take much to get us sick. It doesn't take much to run us over and break our ankle. There's a lot about who we naturally are that make us vulnerable. Now, what's striking about the second chapter of Genesis and that comment is that in our vulnerability, in the first couple's vulnerability, they were also unashamed. And one of the things that we see in terms of the trajectory and intention of the creation narrative is this notion. And the irony now, as we see, that we do our most powerful creative work as human beings 
when we are quite literally naked and unashamed. We would say, it, I mean, I don't know many things that are more creative than the act of sexual encounter that then leads to the birth of a baby. Both of those things, between a man and a woman, and then the woman delivering a baby, both those things require nakedness and are really quite messy. Require nakedness, that vulnerability, but are also very, very powerfully creative. When we are able to acknowledge that we are vulnerable, and now what we would say is that vulnerability means that in order for me to flourish as an individual, I actually need, because of my vulnerability, I need the other person in my life to be helpful for me. I need your assistance. In fact, we would say from a neuroscience standpoint, we flourish in accordance with the creation mandate in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, when the text tells us that God says, let us make mankind in our image, that we are made as plural beings. We are made as people who were intended for each other. And therefore, in Genesis 2, 18, when he says, it's not good for the man to be alone. In fact, because we are so vulnerable. It is in our places of vulnerability that we actually then find ways to be most powerfully creative when we are unashamed. I suggest in the book that evil is not using shame then and or now. Evil is not using shame simply as a way to make us feel bad about ourselves, but it is using shame to dismantle, to deconstruct, to destroy the entire creation, not just how we feel about ourselves, but how we behave in relationships, and then what we do to each other and to the rest of the created universe. If you just joined our conversation today, a visit with Dr. Kurt Thompson, a look at the soul of shame, retelling the stories we believe about ourselves. Now, when we come back after a brief timeout, we're going we're gonna to turn an interesting corner in this dialogue because it, it's ironic that, as Dr. Thompson is pointing out, it is when there is that sense of openness and vulnerability uh, that God can use uh, that circumstance to bring about creation, to bring about certainly healing and restoration. But isn't it interesting how typically our response is that when, when we become aware of our shame, it typically uh, drives us away from others. There is that sense that when it arises, um, we, we recognize that we're, we're fearful of being exposed to others. But as Dr. Thompson points point out, it's just that very exposure to God himself that can bring about healing. How do we get over that hump? We'll talk about that next as our conversation continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Dr. Kurt Thompson with us. He is the author of a new book called the Soul of Shame, Retelling the Stories We Believe About Ourselves, newly published by InterVarsity Press. Now, I'm curious, Doctor, just before the break, talking about this issue of our reactions to shame, it's curious that shame arises when one's sense of defects, in particular, are exposed to others. And yet, wouldn't it be curious that God, who already knows everything about us anyway, if we could somehow capture that sense of awareness and then be able to use it instead of being uh, repelled from God to see that, that God died for us while we were at, yet sinners, understands us and who we are in all of our defects, and, and rather than, than allowing shame to, 
to repel us from God to rather propel us to God? How do we make that happen, though? Well, it's a great question, and I think fortunately we have uh, a very helpful model for us when we look in the Gospel of John in the 21st chapter, when we uh, read about the reinstatement of Peter. It's a well-known story that many of your listeners may be familiar with, in which Peter, after the resurrection, and of course after his betrayal of Jesus, swims to the shore, has breakfast, but then publicly Jesus essentially begins to ask him questions about whether or not Peter loves him. And of course this dialogue leads to Peter, and at one point uh, says that, and Peter was grieved in his heart that Jesus asked him yet a third time, do you love me? I think for me this story is instructive because it tells us a couple of things in general. One is that it was very clear that Jesus kind of, uh, one, can assume, one, one can imagine, uh, without of course having access to all that has been said that's not recorded in the Gospel around this story, one could imagine how easy it would be for Peter to still be wondering whether or not he has a place in this group, wondering not if he has a place, what that place is. And it's also interesting to me that Jesus did not go off at least to have a private conversation with Peter. It would appear that he starts to ask Peter these questions in front of other people. And what's striking also is that Jesus is not going to leave any stone unturned. There's not going to be any shame left in Peter that, that Jesus is going to allow for. And so he actually has a real encounter with Peter, asking him to really explore this issue. Do you really love me? Now, if it's me, there is the part of me that really wants to say, yes, of course I do, while I'm always remembering, well, of course, there is that part of me that apparently doesn't love you, otherwise I wouldn't have betrayed you. What's so striking then, in addition to this, is that Jesus calls Peter to pay attention to what is potentially shaming for him, but then immediately draws Peter's attention to his assignment of feeding his sheep, tending his lambs, of tending his sheep. And essentially, what's uh, important about this, even from an experiential and a community and neurobiological perspective, is that Peter's healing, Peter's reinstatement, is something that takes place in a real embodied experience. He didn't just get some message from one of the other disciples that came in and said, hey, Peter, I talked to Jesus. He said, hey, that whole incident that happened the night you were, you know, I was crucified, we're cool about that. No, there is a direct encounter with a real person in which Peter really feels the difference, we would imagine, when he hears Jesus commission him, even in the face of knowing what his experience was like. In the same way, we live in a culture that, uh, in which we experience much of our faith knowledge uh, through listening to pastors, through reading scripture, and so forth. But it comes to us, as we like to say, it comes to us through our left brain. It comes to us through knowing things kind of logically and linearly and factually and so forth. That's a very different way of knowing than a real encounter with a real person who says, I know what you've done, and I still really want to hang out with you. Those kinds of encounters actually activate parts of our brain that are very different than the kind of encounter that we understand and that happens to us when we hear from someone the quote-unquote fact, as it were, that we are forgiven. It is in these direct encounters with real people in which our shame really is exposed that our neurobiological underpinnings of that shame can actually be transformed and changed. The possibility for creating new neural networks that we, in, in which we experience real release, in which we can remember looking in the face of my friend as I have made confession to him, 
and hearing my friend and remembering my friend say, Kurt, I am with you in this, even in the face of this thing that has happened. That is something that in terms of what I remember and what will actually have powerful impact on my life is going to be far more potent for me than just my hearing the fact that God loves me. And so one of the things that we encourage people to do is to really practice being in small communities of people who are practicing this, uh, this uh, effort of confession and forgiveness on a regular basis in order for us to have real experience that reinforces the very things that we read about in the Scriptures, and so therefore live out the very nature of what St. Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians 12 and 13, about what it means to live as, as part of the body of Christ. So when we're exhorted in Scripture to confess our sins to one another and so fulfill the law of Christ, that there is that sense of, I think it was just suggesting here, that dynamic that's taking place that, that not only allows us to address the, the theological aspects of guilt and shame, as we've been delineating here, but as well as addressing all of this, the psychological ones and the need for that, 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 um, that horizontal-level connectivity to have that experience, that community, so to speak, in order to experience what it's like to be forgiven. That's exactly right, uh, Craig. I mean, it's, it, I think it's, it's striking that, that Jesus said in the Gospel of John again, and they, they will know that you are my disciples by the way you love one another, that our primary witness to the world about who Jesus is is embodied in the way we love one another, and a primary way in which we demonstrate love for one another is the way that we live with and demonstrate forgiveness for each other's foibles in which we demonstrate and live out what it means to be vulnerable, to be naked, and yet not, shame ha- not let shame have the talking stick in this space. We, in, in the book, we talk about this model of what we read about in the letter to the Hebrews, in which we read, Therefore fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and now sits at the right hand of the Father. If we're going to watch what Jesus does and do what he did, Jesus was someone who went to the cross. He went looking for shame. He didn't wait for shame to come to find him. He went looking for it in order for him to do the business with shame that needed to be done with it. And so one of the exercises that we give to people is to uh, begin to actually do an inventory of shame. Where are those places in which shame wants to hide out in your life? The more we are actually going to look for it, the less opportunity it has for hijacking our brains, literally, and our relationships, catching us off guard. As we go to look for it and then tell others about this, we find ways to literally create new neural pathways, new neural networks that over time can begin to outpace our shame so that shame does not have the same kind of powerful influence in our lives. So that ultimately then that shame is not something that winds up driving this major wedge between God and ourselves, where we have this sense of diminished value, we convince ourselves God's made a mistake with us, things of this sort, uh, sort of that, uh, that warped view, that warped understanding of our relationship with God, uh, that damage view that uh, so many people often uh, walk in, but rather to understand that that shame can um, bring about not just the the awareness that we are exposed, but then to allow that vulnerability 
to happen so that we can find healing and restoration. Because as I said before, shame, if treated in the proper fashion, if responded to in the proper fashion, like pain, can actually be an important alarm system that tells us there's something wrong that needs some attention in your life. Our conversation with Dr. Kurt Thompson, the book, The Soul of Shame, retelling the stories we believe about ourselves. Newly published by InterVarsity Press and available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area as well as through the usual suspects, including Amazon.com. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.